Hello and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we are so delighted to talk about Christmas movies and scary movies at the same time. I'm Karen Peterson, joined by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. How are you, Lauren? I'm doing pretty good here today. Yes, I had a good week. I have, and I'm really excited about the two movies that we're going to be talking about, like, <laughs> because they are some of my favorites, even though they also scarred me for life. So, you know, it's that, it's that combination of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I am really tired this morning because last night I went to the symphony with a friend. I have a friend who just buys a bunch of tickets to the Pacific Symphony down in, in Orange County every year and just kind of takes people with them when when these dates come around and so last night i got to go and the com or the conductor was a woman and i don't think i've ever been to the symphony to see a female conductor before and it was just crazy because it was the day after we recorded our episode on tar she seemed very different from lydia tar her name is man <laughs> chen i was i was gonna say if you say that the conductor was lydia tar i'm gonna fall off of my chair and just be like uh, wait <laughs> turns out she's real no um she is this this wonderfully just like really just enthusiastic and excited um Taiwanese American woman who is based in Chicago I guess but has been all over the world and just looking at her list of accomplishments I was just like wow this sounds like Lydia Tarr <laughs> and um yeah she was I I think the first woman well she's been the first female guest conductor at a bunch of symphonies and philharmonics and um yeah first time i've seen a woman conduct the pacific symphony and it was just like wow the timing on this is crazy and it was just so yeah and it was just so fun and my friend that i was that i was with he teaches film at a high school for the arts and um so we were talking before you know before it started of course we were talking about all sorts of movies that are coming and that are out now and we talked a lot about tar he hasn't seen it yet but um he was just really curious about it so i was kind of filling him in on on some of the details of it and then by the end of of the performance i mean she this uh chen the conductor she was just like bouncing around i've never seen a conductor with that much energy (laughs) and like at the end my friend even was just like she must be exhausted. How did she keep that going? That was 35 straight minutes if she did not put her arms down. And uh, I was just like, yeah, she must do a lot of working out at the gym. <laughs> I never really thought about conducting as like being a really like whole body thing, but it definitely is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it was just such a neat experience. And like I said, the timing was just kind of crazy. And uh, I, re- I really would love to have had the opportunity to to speak with her um just to ask her about her experiences and her journey and um and if she's seen tar yeah have you seen tar what did you think of it (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that was that was what i did and that's why i'm so tired this morning totally worth it it was awesome that sounds really cool what what were they playing like what what was the symphony um so the first half they did it was it was two pieces. One was from a actually a female composer from Brazil. Um, and then the second part of that was they actually brought in um this incredible guitarist, Milos. Uh he's he goes by one name in all caps, apparently. Um and he is just an incredible guitarist from 
Montenegro. And um, I don't remember what they were playing for that one. And then the second half was all Rachmaninoff. So it was it was beautiful. Yeah. It was just incredible. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Just a fun night out. So. All right. Well, shall we start on uh, on our agenda here? Yes, I think that we should. Well, we actually have a question about Tar that we, we do uh, that we received after we'd recorded the episode, and so we were like, "Oh, well, we'll answer it um, this time." So, yeah. So we'd like to thank Eduardo for submitting this question. Um, we're sorry that we didn't receive it before we recorded, but um, that's okay. This this gives us a chance to talk about it a little bit here, and then also plug our mini episode that we did on Tar. I keep referring to it as a mini episode, kind of jokingly, because it ended up being a full hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's but it's on a single film. I think yes, that that yeah. you know that's what it comes down to. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, we should have known that we could not talk about that film in like twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Should have, but. Anyway, um, Eduardo says, I enjoyed Tar, but was rather put off by the director's choice to always place the camera away from the actors. I know Todd Field is a big Kubrick, Kubrick fan. He even had a bit part in Eyes Wide Shut as the piano player. But I felt the movie could have been more engaging with a more intimate approach. Then again, it does make sense given the movie's austere aesthetic. What are your thoughts, Lauren? I well, it was interesting because I did I noticed something similar to what Eduardo was saying. Although there are a number of close-ups and a number of like he he varies camera angles, etc. But the the scene that really um, got to me, I think, where I noticed this the most is the scene with uh, the the musical director that she's firing, right, or that she's basically pushing out. Yeah um and rather than so they go they're in his office and they go and sit in these two armchairs and they're like way across the room and the camera stays you know pretty far away while they're having this conversation and one of the things i actually liked about that at least that sequence is that we didn't get to see their facial expressions um we did what we got was their voices and we and their body language and how they actually reacted to each other so there is a stagey quality to it i guess um, which again makes sense given the subject matter, but I think that it also kind of, because this is a movie that is so much about emotional distance, both emotional distance, but then also emotional closeness. And there's like a kind of a push and pull going on. Um, that particular scene I think was really effective actually in the use of that, that distance camera. Um, it does mean that, yeah, I, I think that he's right in that it, uh, it, it emphasizes the austerity of it. It also emphasizes the stagey quality of it, the, that Tar is consistently on a stage. She's consistently performing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, it, it also, I think, brings up the, the elements of like the voices as being very important, the, what is actually being said versus the expressions on the characters' faces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I didn't find myself put off by it. I felt like it really added to this it was it made the it made the cinematography sort of a player in the in the character development and in the storyline in a way that a lot of times cinematography is not used and i i felt like there are times where i definitely feel the coldness and the austerity of the film but i felt like that was 100% intentional and it didn't it didn't put me off in terms of like, well, I'm not, I don't like this. It was more of just like, wow, I feel the coldness that adds to the experience of, of watching Lydia's story play out. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to reference Kubrick because I think one of the criticisms of Kubrick is, is very often that, you know, he's very photographic, mm -hmm. um, which makes sense. He was a still photographer. That's how he started his career. Um, and so a lot of his films do have that kind of, like, again, that stage equality, like we're setting up a still photograph um, in, in a frame more than like we're actually showing a film. Uh, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't get the sense here. I didn't get the sense that like Field was constructing an, a singular image, that that was the goal. And I think that that's sometimes the goal with Kubrick is that he's, he's constructing a mise-en-scene basically. Mm -hmm. um, but this felt much more, I guess, kinetic and and much more like 
displaying the performances that are going on and particularly when it comes to Lydia. And there are also, he varies this a lot as well. There, it, it's not just a single distance camera for most of the, the film. Um, like I say, I think that the, the scene in the, the musical director's office is one that really struck me because of the way that he had, had blocked it. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, I didn't feel, I didn't feel disconnected from the film as a result of it, I guess. Yeah. Which is not to say Eduardo that you are wrong in how no, not you feel all. about it. Like this is just how we each took it and, and our experience with it. But I think that it's, I definitely can see how that would be off putting. Um, and yeah, so I, I appreciate you, you, uh, sharing that with us, sharing your feelings about it. I think that's a difficult film and it's, it's mm-hmm. one that isn't going to appeal to everybody. And there, there is a lack of intimacy, definitely. Yeah. Um, which can be definitely off-putting depending upon how you want to experience the film, how you want to understand. I do think that it's a deliberate choice. Um, whether or not that's, it's a positive choice is, is very much uh, a status of the viewer. I wonder if part of the reason that it's particularly striking is that we're used to seeing films centered around women being much more intimate because women tend to be more emotional and um uh and well not more emotional but different emotional um and if women are portrayed as more emotional yes (laughs) even though anger is an emotion guys (laughs) men men generally are much more emotional than women i have found it's really true it's really true the difference is that they've kind of convinced themselves and tried to convince us that the things that they experience are not emotions whereas we are just you know anyway we can have a whole other conversation (laughs) about that it's logic my absolute fury with you is logic right exactly my Uh, opinion is is truth you know yeah anyways no yeah exactly and so i i just i wonder if part of the reason that it is particularly striking here is that we're centered around a woman instead of a man and so these, um, the more distance and coldness, we might not, I don't know for sure, but we might not um, notice it as strongly if the subject was a male conductor. Yeah, instead that's of a, a good woman. point. And I do think it emphasizes when we do get close-ups, particularly of Lydia. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the scene that is a very striking scene and that feels very different from the rest of the film uh, in, in her childhood home. Yeah, and we actually do get a close up of her, you know, coming to tears, uh, watching a Bernstein performance, mm-hmm. and and I think that that there there is definitely an emotional distance that we get from her that we don't really get total access to her psyche in, at some level, which is is something that you know close ups allow us to do. We get to see the actor's face, um, and and so it emphasizes the moments when we actually do get that. Yeah. Uh, yeah yeah definitely so thank you eduardo for submitting that we really appreciate it it was great to continue talking about this movie because i think we both liked it a lot more than we were sure we did <laughs> the more that we've talked about it i feel like i, I encourage everybody to go listen to our, our mini-sode because we get into it a lot and uh and definitely we we seem to be like the more that we talked we were just like oh oh yeah this is really interesting oh yeah okay <laughs> yeah that's the thing about todd field is he really does create these movies that have so many layers and as you peel them back you just find more and more good stuff you know and uh i just i love that and i particularly love that about tar um yeah and in that mini so just for those of you who have not seen the movie yet we do talk about this a little bit in the beginning of it we do obviously spoil it goes we go in depth but this is a movie that it's not that you can't be spoiled it's just that knowing what happens i don't think really affects your experience watching it enough that you should avoid spoilers is what i'm trying to say i mean you should go watch the movie first and then listen to our episode but if you're not sure about watching the movie listen to our episode i don't think it'll ruin it for you yeah definitely so okay so this week we had um the decennial (laughs) which is every (laughs) 10 years apparently i learned that word uh because it's uh, yeah they're saying that because it's not a decade 
uh it is a decade it's 10 years but it's not in the you know the in the zero year of the decade anyway sight and sound <laughs> that's a pull every 10 years but they started it in 1952 so they always do it in the twos um but every 10 years they add new people to this poll and this year they have it's all critics this year it, it was 1639 critics per- programmers curators archivists and academics sorry not all critics um were invited and basically what everybody does when people are invited to participate is they submit their top 10 ballot and this is films of all time like the the best films of all time yeah great they literally label it greatest films of all time yes they do and one of the problems with that is film is subjective (laughs) i don't know if you know this Art is subjective? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I know. I know. I am sure you've never heard that before. Like you never learned that in school, but it's true. It's a fact. And uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, these lists are always interesting to look at. More interesting to talk about what's not included usually than what is. But um, here's the thing. And we're going to talk about some of the specific entries in this list, but I don't know why. Like, I've had this conversation so many times on my other podcast. You know, it started off, we do a weekly top five, and sometimes we still do. And every time I do a ranking, I'm always like, this is based on my mood right now today. Because <laughs> lists are silly. Ranking things is silly because it, there's so much involved and it could change on a moment's notice. And also, there's going to be a lot of people who are mad about number one because they never saw it or they don't know it exists or whatever. And it's like, good, go make your own list. You're welcome to. It's okay. <laughs> so anyway, that's my overall feeling about ranking and yeah. the sight and sound poll. What are your thoughts? Um, I, I hate rankings and I, I've been, I've increasingly hated rankings, I think, as I've gotten older, <laughs> the, partially because of what you're saying, you know, if, like, if you ask me today, what are your top 10 favorite films? Tomorrow, I would have a completely different list. And there might be some that would, you know, probably rank up there. Definitely a lot of Hitchcock films would be up there. But then I would begin to think about it. So like, well, okay, how am I going to compare? So in, in terms of the sight and sound list, like, how do you compare Tarkovsky to to Ackerman or to Hitchcock or to Kubrick or or to Jordan Peele right Mm -hmm. like how do you compare those films how do you compare so so one of the top the the number one film according to this list is um Chantal Ackerman's um Jean Delman and Okay, fine. That, I, I, I think that it's very cool that a woman got kind of ranked at the top, that a female director got her film ranked at the top. But how do I look at that film and then look at Get Out and, and compare them? Right. Right. And say, like, this film is greater than that one. Just like, well, these are two very different films trying to do very different things and accomplishing very different things in different ways. How do I say to, you know, that this one is greater than that one? To, to talk about, you know, the, the top, even the top five, how do you say, you know, Tokyo Story is, is not as great a film as Citizen Kane, but is a greater film than 2001 A Space Odyssey? Like, how do, you, how do you compare those? If you've seen Tokyo Story and you've seen Citizen Kane, how the fuck do you come to the conclusion that one is greater than the other? Right. Um, and, and so I, I've always said that I think that, that one of the more important conversations is about the important films. And by that, I mean films that are influential, films that, are, um, that shape cinematic history, right? And that is very different from saying that a film is great because I would say that, that a film like Birth of a Nation, which is not a great film um, and is a very problematic film, as we obviously know, and, and is not something that I would rank on any list is a very important film. It's a film that needs to be talked about at some level because of how influential it has been. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'm much more interested in that kind of a conversation. What are the important films? What are the films that have influenced film history? What are the films, you know, and not just like, oh, this was the first to do X, but you know, the, the influential elements of them, the way that they have changed the course of cinema. Uh, 
not like, you know, being able to say like, oh, well, Citizen Kane is a greater film than Beau Travail is a greater film than Singing in the Rain. Like what the, watch Beau Travail and Singing in the Rain sometime and tell me how you can compare those. <laughs> yeah. Like explain that to me. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, well, and there's so much that obviously that goes into creating a list like this too. Um, I, so um, one of our patrons actually is Robert Daniels and I read his Substack that he started. He was included this year in this list. And he actually, after the poll was put out, he, he wrote um, about what 10 films he had submitted and the reasons behind his submissions. And one of the things he wrote kind of in the beginning of this piece was, with my ballot, I wanted to take big swings while highlighting black filmmaking. And, and then he says, I was strategic and yet mindful of extolling what I consider to be truly great visionary filmmaking that deserves to be included while hoping to push certain titles into people's minds for the next iteration of this survey. So that's the thing. And I think that that's a great way to approach something like this. But yeah. also when you slap the label on it of greatest, like you're saying, then that gives just average readers who might not be part of the critical community or the academic community. Um, it gives them this impression that the list is something different than it is. And yeah. this is just one out of 1639 participants. You know, that pretty much everybody was making similar choices based on their backgrounds, based on what films they feel are important for people to see and and mm -hmm. really should be out there. And so I think that, yeah, I think that that means that this poll, not that the poll is silly, because a lot of the films on here are films that um, definitely people should watch and should experience. But yeah. I think that, that the, the title of greatest of all time just carries a weight that can't be delivered. Well, yeah, exa exactly. It's it's this ranking. It's also, and one of the problems with that is then then we begin to talk about canon, right? right? And what are canonical films and what does that mean? What does canon mean? And people have arguments about it all the time. Canon ultimately has to be flexible. It has to move with the time. And I, I, th I do think that to give them credit, Sight and Sound is trying to do that. They're polling a wider range of people. They're, they're polling a wider, wider age ranges, um, race, ethnicity, gender, sexual identity, et cetera. Uh, all, all of which is good. And I do think that it is, it's reflected at least in part in a number of the films that, that got selected, particularly as you go further down the list. Um, you begin to see a lot more films from the outside of kind of the white European mainstays, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, everyone, even before this list came out, everyone was like, oh, which one is going to top it? Citizen Kane or Vertigo, right? And, and lo and behold, Citizen Kane and Vertigo are uh, number two and number three, Vertigo and then, and then Citizen Kane's num number three. And it's like, the, does this surprise anyone? No, but, but we stop talking about why is Citizen Kane constantly ranking at the top? Um, you know, why is Vertigo constantly ranking at the top? I've said numerous times that I could name 10 Hitchcock films that are better than Vertigo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think that some of it is, you know, people have also talked about recency bias, the lack of uh, silent films in early cinema that are being represented, the lack of women that are being represented, despite the fact that Chantal Ackerman is, is being listed at the top, um, the lack of people of color and, and how you have this list that is supposed to be codifying, it is codifying, is claiming to codify at some level, um, the greatest films and you're missing out on huge swaths of film history and of film production, mm -hmm. right? Why isn't RRR on this list? You know, why, why are there, there are definitely Indian films on here, but they're very specific ones. And they're ones that have been listed in the canon for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, if you go through most of these films, and there are a couple of exceptions, but most of these films have already been considered canonical films. And by canonical, I mean, they've been taught in film school. They are taught very often as being kind of the top ones, the films that you have to see. If you were a serious cinephile, if you were a serious student of film, you have to see, have seen these films. Um, and fine. And there's nothing wrong with them. There isn't like, I'm not saying that Citizen Kane is a bad movie or anything like that, or that 2001 is a bad movie, but it's boring. 
it's it's boring to just constantly see the same films reiterated and the same basic canonical structure reiterated. Uh, and I'm I'm just tired of it. I I do think it's very funny that um, one of I think one of the managing editors of Sight and Sound uh, published a little thing that that Chantal Ackerman had actually sent to them back in like the 90s when she was asked to participate in like, the best ever documentaries list or something like that. And she essentially is saying, I don't want to. This is what they made us do in school. Why are you so obsessed <laughs> with ranking things? And this was being posted as like, oh, isn't this cute? I'm like, Chantel Ackerman literally is saying, stop ranking fucking movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure she would be like, oh, you're at the top of the sight and sound pole. It's like, cool, great. <laughs> I don't care. And and that's the thing. This is a film, Jean Diamant is a film that has been considered to be one of the greatest films ever made for a very long time. This is not news, right? Right. This is not like, oh, you know, this isn't like, I don't know, Avengers Age of Ultron popping a list or something <laughs> like that. This this does not, you know, and I wouldn't say that, that that would shake things up, but this does not shake things up in, in any really meaningful way, except for the fact that it's a female director, which is good. But this has been widely considered to be one of the greatest films ever made for a long time. You know, we really, really need to get away from from this kind of ranking and behavior. And at at some point, we just need to be like, you know, what? we're going to stop ranking movies. We're going to stop acting like this is a zero sum game where you can list all of the greatest films ever made. Yep. I remember one time when I worked at a word circuit still, RIP award circuit, um, I was asked to do a top 10 list for like, I don't know, movie moms or something like that. It was just something, you know, it was a silly list. And uh, I I just, I did 10, but I alphabetized them instead of doing a 10 through one list. And in the beginning I said, moms already have enough on their plates. We don't need to be comparing them to each other. <laughs> and I stand by that with film directors too. Like they're already... You know, like you say, there's so many films that are so different from each other. I mean, even just Citizen Kane versus Vertigo versus Jean Dielman. Um, they're so they're so different. They're trying to do different things, and the level of success in in each of those films doing what they're trying to do. It's you know, I, I I'm with you. I think comparing and ranking you can have some interesting discussions when you when you compare films but to try to say one is better than the other i i one of my least favorite questions when people find out that i write about film and podcast about it is what's your favorite movie i don't have a favorite movie (laughs) (laughs) and people hate that answer yeah (laughs) i well that's the thing i think that most people would say that they most people who who work with film a lot would not say that they have a favorite movie because um yeah i i mean and i think that even my answers would be boring because i would be like well i would have to go through every film that i've ever seen and consider what i love the most and and my immediate answer would always be i would be psycho you know i would be the the lady vanish or something like that but i'm like but is that is that really my favorite movie or is that just like you know something that i i love and i respect and and i think it's a great film yeah i my go-to answer just because it makes people happy is empire strikes back because that's one of the first movies that i specifically really remember seeing in the theater um when i was little and so i just like it's it's empire strikes back and then you know people are just like oh that's so cool but that's not really my answer i don't have one (laughs) i really truly don't (laughs) (laughs) um okay so do you want to talk about any of the films that are on this list uh i mean we we can i think that we've i I will say, I think that most of these films are great films. Like I, I would never, I would most of them, I would not be like, oh no, we can get rid of that one. 
um except for maybe vertigo like yeah why is that still so much at the top i don't understand it i remember ages ago so back when i was at nyu uh i remember having a conversation with one of the hitchcock scholars about it and like you know and me saying like what what my opinion continues to be which is that psycho is is hitchcock's greatest film i just like no 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 it's vertigo vertigo is the one that has kind of been been ranked the highest i'm like when did that start happening Mm -hmm. and and his answer i think if i remember correctly his answer was that it really began to to start happening in like the 80s that's when because for a long time psycho was listed as like the the hitchcock's masterpiece right yeah and then at some point it kind of flipped spaces with vertigo and vertigo began being listed and i didn't want to say to him because of his his own opinions on vertigo and everything that this this sound this sounds like old white man nonsense like that's what a lot of this comes down to you know we've talked about vertigo before but but i'm just like it's as a film it has problems as you know kind of it the themes that it's working with it has problems hitchcock himself didn't think it was a great film um it was a failure at the box office, which, you know, is not the mark of a good or bad film, but still. Uh, and, and so I don't understand why this particular Hitchcock film, of all of the great Hitchcock films that he made, and he made so many great ones, is the one that gets, that gets ranked at the top. Except I, except I do think that there's a canon bias, that it has been ranked at the top for so long that people just list it as that without yeah. even thinking about it. Yeah, I think that that is one of the problems with ranking lists on a wide scale. Sorry to go back to that. But I think that, you know, like for years, it was Citizen Kane was always the top. And it was like the greatest movie ever. And when I finally saw Citizen Kane, I was just like, okay, this is good. But there are so many other movies that I like more than this. Why is this considered the greatest film ever made, you know? And Vertigo is kind of that way, too. I think that there's just the sense that at some point it just kind of becomes the automatic check. Like, oh, well, obviously this won the poll last time, so it has to be on the top of this list, Um, even if it drops down a little bit in, you know, instead of bumping up other things. I don't know. It's it's silly. It's all silly. Let's talk about Gremlins. (laughs) (laughs) Film that did not get listed on this. should have. But should have, yeah, definitely. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh goodness! Um, Explain to compare Citizen Kane and Gremlins for me. Like, go. <laughs> uh, Gremlins is very similar to Citizen Kane, except for that it's shorter. But Mrs. Deagle, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> there are numerous cinematic references throughout Gremlins that are. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, there's actually something this week I when I rewatched the movie, there was something that I noticed or caught a line that I caught about Mrs. Deagle that I had never noticed before that I was just like, oh, that's awesome. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Maybe I've okay. noticed it before and forgot. But anyway, um, yeah, so we wanted it is Christmas time. I don't know if you noticed, um, but it's Christmas time. And uh, we wanted to talk about um some christmas adjacent movies i don't know if if we would call gremlins a christmas movie it did come out in june originally when it was released Um, i i actually got a message from my friend from one of my friends this morning um saying uh just like responding to the to the story that we posted on instagram and she just said (laughs) christmas movie (laughs) it's like well there you go yep so Like the entire thing takes place at Christmas on Christmas Eve. And uh, there's so much about it that kind of, well, we'll talk about this as we go, but um, Gizmo is a Christmas gift. Yeah. Gizmo is a Christmas gift. And I think that some of what happens in this movie probably wouldn't have happened, you know, in this town on any other night besides Christmas Eve. So, and I, so I think that it is a Christmas movie, even though it came out in June and was in theaters at the same time as Ghostbusters such a weird thing (laughs) the 80s were a great time to be a kid let me just tell you especially when you had parents that love to take you to the movies um and yeah i first saw this movie in the theaters when it was released um and it scared the crap out of me and also i loved it (laughs) and i think that's actually kind of where (laughs) this conversation started why we decided to talk specifically about gremlins because we were talking a little bit about doing 
you know, Christmas movies, horror movies, you know, combining the Mm -hmm. two. And um, where did that start? I think you asked that question of like, where did this like horror Christmas movie thing start? Because that's a big... Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was well, I was specifically thinking about horror slasher films yeah. but, or um, Christmas slasher films because there are they're not tons. Right. But there are a number of them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Black Christmas, but Silent Night, Deadly Night um, and Christmas Evil. There's we've even we've even talked about a few of them before. Yeah. Um, and, and it's it's a weird kind of subcategory of horror that that takes place around Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And so we, we got to talking about that and kind of where did this start? And I was just thinking about how Gremlins was kind of my gateway into mm-hmm. enjoying these um, less traditional Christmas movies. And uh, yeah, so then we just decided, you know, it'll be fun. Let's talk about Gremlins. <laughs> Let's talk about Gremlins. And Gremlins to the new batch. <laughs> so um, do you remember when you first saw Gremlins, how old you were or any of that? Do you I... have any memory of that? I, I see, I have memory of seeing gremlins because it scared the living snot out of me. Um, I, I definitely did not see it when it came out because I was not born. Um, <laughs> no, it came out in 1984. <laughs> uh, so two years before I, I existed. Uh, but... Thank you for always reminding me of our age difference. <laughs> but, well, I'm just, I'm just saying I did not see this in theater. And I I, and, but I definitely saw it as, as a small child. Like, and, and I remember actually living in um, my my childhood home that I lived in until I was about 11 years old. So probably sometime around about eight or nine, I would imagine is when I saw this film. Um, It scared the hell out of me. Uh, I had to run and jump over my bed so that the gremlins (laughs) that lived underneath the bed could not reach out and grab me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was recounting this to my parents the other day and they were like, why did we show you that? And I was like, I don't know, because it's billed as a kid's film. Yeah. Like it's and you know it's like oh it's this cute little like Furby guy he's the adorable Gizmo's fucking adorable <laughs> and then he spawns these evil little creatures that eat everything and that just like want to cause accidentally chaos. it's not no it's not Gizmo's fault it is a Gizmo Gizmo, Gizmo innocent Gizmo innocent that's right <laughs> um. So, so yeah, I, I was fairly young. I was a child. And actually, it's funny because most of my friends, if you ask them, like, when did you see Gremlins? We all saw it as children, even though most of us, again, like, we, we were not alive when it came out. We all saw it as children. Our parents thought that it was appropriate. Uh, <laughs> and, and, it, and it wasn't. And I remember making my father promise that he would never climb down the chimney. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Oh, that story still just, like, kills me every time. But, um. Yeah, so I, I mean, we watched all kinds of movies that were age inappropriate, um, and Gremlins. It was a PG family movie with a really cute little thing at the center, and there were some toys, not a lot, um, related to the movie. We didn't have the tie-ins growing up like we do now, but, um, but you know, it was this. It was Poltergeist. It was all kinds of movies that really sure kids can watch them but should they no well and, and <laughs> like I little tiny think, ones gremlins and and i think that this is somewhat apocryphal but gremlins and poltergeist are often cited as as the films that kind of raised the awareness that we needed a different rating between yeah. pg and r because yeah if you watch gremlins there isn't anything r rated in it like there's some violence but there's not really any blood there's no like you know there there's green blood, right? There's little animals blowing mm-hmm. up in microwaves and things like that, but it's all very cartoony, um, deliberately so. Yeah. And, and, but it is scary and it is not a children's film, right? Especially the whole idea of like, oh, this cute little pet that then, you know, spawns these evil creatures that, that, you know, try to kill you basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, at Christmas time, right? And and I, I do think that some of the reason why we have Christmas horror films, first of all, Christmas, you know, I've talked about before that Christmas being associated with ghost stories and horror stories um, for a very long time, long before film existed, this uh, like back into the Victorian period and even before that, um, because part of it was about, it's the death of the year. It's the winter solstice. It's yeah. kind of the, the lead into winter and um, everything dying, right? And so, 
that's when the ghosts come out. That's when the, the gremlins come out. Um, but also I think it's the contrast that we have this like, you know, almost particularly now we have this almost aggressive attitude of just like, are we, everybody has to be happy. Everybody has to be joyful. All of the good things happen right now. And, and that there's that contrast between the bright lights and the kind of, you know, excessive joy almost and, and the, the dark things that come out. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, what I, one of the things that I think makes gremlins so fun is the way that, uh, there are certain scenes where, uh, typical things that you see at Christmas time become objects of, of terror, or at least, um, you know, like, um, I'm trying to think like the dog getting strung up by Christmas lights yeah, or when one of the gremlins is attacking the mom when she's making Christmas cookies, you know, things like that. It's, it's, um, using those, those things that make us feel so cozy about Christmas, um, turning them into weapons or, or yeah. objects of, of terror. The, and- the carol, the caroling. Yes. The caroling. That's one of my favorite <laughs> scenes. Cause, cause that, one of the things I like about gremlins is that it, it really is about chaos. They are doing this because it's their nature. This mm-hmm. is just what they are, right? They want to cause chaos. Right. Um, and, and, and they're deliberate about it. They're like, you know, we're going to make a mockery of caroling. So we're going to, you know, do these Christmas carols. And then the one guy is going to go in and reconnect the chair. There's going to like shoot this woman (laughs) through a window. Right. It's, it is that, um, you know, it's that subversion and they're really enjoying it. And that's part of the joy of it also is that it is subversive. Mm -hmm. It's, it's like, you know, we, we're actually enjoying the, insane lengths that these creatures go to just cause havoc yeah and and make people's lives a living hell that's what their goal is at the end of the day yeah well and i love i mean you get with mr futterman you get this explanation about how gremlins have kind of always been around and they're the they're the the kind of monster in the machine that gums up the works you know like in in he's a world war ii vet and he's talking about how like the gremlins would destroy their planes and things and and just cause chaos and and even at the end of the movie when um billy's dad uh who started this whole thing and refuses to take responsibility uh (laughs) anyway uh when he's just like yeah so if your vcr goes on the fritz or your refrigerator isn't working or whatever like it might be the gremlins and that is a terrifying message to leave with children (laughs) (laughs) exactly there are gremlins crawling through the air ducts in your house (laughs) yeah yeah anyway yeah but it, it it does. It does. It's like that. It's an urban legend almost. Right. It's an urban yeah. Legend writ large. Right. So it's it's that whole idea of like you know something going haywire for no apparent reason, mm-hmm. and and the explanation is well, it's the gremlins, the gremlins in the walls, the gremlins who've been sneaking around around your house. I have to say that for the most part, the gremlins are not sneaky. They are very <laughs> deliberate, and they're very <laughs> like, I want to be there to scare the shit out of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yep, it's true. Like when they just take over the tavern and poor Kate is just trying to deal with them and she's just like, well, I guess they're here. I guess I'll serve them. (laughs) Yeah, she's like pouring them beer and they're like singing and shooting each other and playing cards. Oh, it's so much fun. And then, of course, they end up in the movie theater and they enjoy the crap out of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yes, and that's one of my favorite scenes because I, I really just love that line where Billy is looking through the room and he's like, they're watching Snow White and they love it. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, well, it, it goes back to this whole idea of them being these little like agents of chaos, basically these little atavistic, totally kind of, largely mindless. I mean, they're, they have one goal in mind, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, group of creatures that just want to cause havoc and but are enjoy things as well like they like they enjoy killing each other they like it when you know they're swinging around on fans (laughs) and one of them goes through the window it's just like ah it's hilarious (laughs) yeah now i joked when we were talking on slack earlier this week we were talking about that and i was like yeah and and snow white gets them all killed because then they blow up the movie theater obviously then stripe is still alive but but really these these little monsters they're they need to be exterminated they're like pests you know it's it's like there's an infestation and uh 
they they need to be exterminated but they're really funny to watch much different from you know when you have cockroaches in your house <laughs> those are not fun to watch but um yeah I, I i just i love this movie so much um one of the things that i had not noticed before or at least i don't remember noticing before was at the end of the so mrs deagle of course she's she's the mean lady in town she's rich she's grumpy she controls the bank everyone cowers in fear of her i remember as a kid thinking i kind of want to be that old lady <laughs> like i didn't want to not be liked Jesus. by people but i just it was more of just i liked the idea of being able to just go where you want and just tell people what's on your mind and not worry about the the consequences of that i didn't want to be mean and have people cowering in fear let's be clear on that but i just i liked the 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 freedom that she kind of has to just be herself but um the thing that i noticed this time was um it's toward the end of the movie they're talking about I think it's a reporter talking about Mrs. Deagle and makes a comment about her husband being a convicted swindler, stock yeah. swindler. And I was just like, wait, what? I've never heard that before. <laughs> and it yeah. just was funny and, and interesting. Yeah. I, I, I noticed that too. I love all of the little references that creep into this one. So you, you get like Snow White and, and things mm -hmm. like that, which are much more obvious. There's also a reference to, there's a character called Dr. Moreau. Um, <laughs> yeah. Who's just referenced like once or twice and, and, and that's it. There's um, Mrs. Deagle is like, even uses some similar lines from like the Wizard of Oz about, you know, I wanted, I'm going to steal your dog mm -hmm. kind of thing. So she's like, she's the wicked witch. So there is this, like, there are all of these film references, like Gizmo loves TV. Uh, and, and he watches, he enjoys watching films. There are all of these films that are like playing on Billy's TV, like, um, invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah. And uh, and a couple of other things. The the number like there's a really brief scene where the father is at an inventors convention, mm -hmm. and behind him is the time machine from H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Uh, there so there are all of these like little Steven Spielberg is in that scene too. By the way, oh, he just he? walks by. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And so there are all of these like little red, there's a reference to E.T. at one point. And in fact, there are a couple references to E.T. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, like when the gremlin pulls the, the phone cord and is like phone home. And he's, and <laughs> I, I like, but I, this is very Joe Dante, first of all, like yeah. he loves these kinds of little references and use using film directors, et cetera, for the names of characters and stuff like that. Um, but it does kind of contribute to this feeling of glee because part of the joy of gremlins really is watching the gremlins cause havoc. Like yeah. that's what yeah. you're there for, even though they're bad, right? We still enjoy watching them. It's that it's a very Looney Tunes kind of element. And I think that gets emphasized even more in, in the second film. <laughs> yes, very much. <laughs> where they're sort of running amok and they're causing havoc and they're causing problems for people. But there's also that joy in it. And particularly when it comes to Mrs. Deagle, who's been set up as this horrible, horrible person. There, on the one hand, just like, do I want to see her catapulted through a window? No, but also kind of like I <laughs> like you do enjoy those things. You enjoy the the havoc that they create. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I do like that in both Gremlins and in Gremlins 2, there's a point at which Gizmo just is pushed too far. And he's like, I've got to take care of this. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Should we talk about um, Gremlins 2? <laughs> yes, I think we should talk about Gremlins 2. Now, you, I think, are a little bit more enthusiastic about this movie than I am. <laughs> I So, if Gremlins, if the first Gremlins is Christmas, I think Gremlins 2 is New Year's. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, it, it kind of ends almost like New Year's Eve, where you've got this big party where everybody's going to go out at midnight, right? Um, yeah, I, I, one of the things that I like about Gremlins too, I would absolutely agree that it's not as well constructed a film as Gremlins and that, you know, by moving it kind of from the small town to the big city to this like, you know, big overblown um, uh, tower, basically Trump Tower. <laughs> yeah. um, 
which, you know, actually looking at it again, you're just like, man, this was really prescient in more ways than they even realized. It's kind of a, if Elon Musk built a building. Yeah. <laughs> like everything is always going wrong, but I, I like the, you know, so you've got the father's inventions in the first film that are always going wrong. I like then you flip that and make it even bigger mm-hmm. in, um, in whatever the clamp building. Uh I I enjoy Gremlins 2 because it's just so anarchic and it gets anarchic almost immediately. Yeah. Um, the first film, there's a lot of setup and everything. And I think that there needs to be, you know, and it's enjoyable setup at the same time. The second film is very much like what you're here for is to watch the Gremlins and to watch the Gremlins go crazy. So here are the Gremlins going crazy. And that's like the majority of the film is just them causing chaos um and and i do really enjoy like the brain gremlin who is voiced by tony randall (laughs) um and explains kind of like well here's what we want you know we want civilization (laughs) he's Um, like he's like stripe from the first movie except for articulate and um a little bit more controlled he's he's like in the first movie you have stripe is still an agent of chaos um he is much more um um thoughtful i guess like he has a plan and he knows what he needs to do but he's yeah this is like the next evolution this guy brain the brain guy in gremlins 2 is like the evolution of stripe yeah stripe stripe unlike all the other gremlins stripe is deliberately malevolent like he he wants he wants to kill gizmo he wants to kill um billy he like he there are specific things that he wants you have to say he also watched like his entire species be wiped out in an explosion <laughs> so his yeah. anger at the end is kind of understandable but uh... <laughs> but i don't know if he's actually angry or if he's just like eh, i'll do it again it's fine <laughs> yeah, he reali- he realizes i think that he's the last one pretty yeah much. yeah um he goes yeah, out that- in a blaze of glory but I, I like that Brain Gremlin then shows up and and is is kind of giving a voice to it, just like well let me explain to you what we're up to here just the <laughs> yeah um I I think I might have only seen Gremlins two once when it first came out and then not again until this week because when I was watching it there were things that I was like I definitely do not remember this movie at all it felt like I was watching a brand new movie that I had never seen even though I know I'd seen it um and there were definitely things that I did remember but one thing that was so strange is I had kind of a Mandela effect situation if you had asked me before I watched it again this week how the how Billy ends up with Gizmo again I totally remember the old man showing up and saying like now you're ready here you go that is not at all what happens no (laughs) (laughs) and that is how i thought that went down and no it is not i remembered that very incorrectly which is what happens when you haven't seen a movie in 30 years (laughs) but um yeah i i the old man dies that's so sad yeah it's very well and poor, he dies poor off gizmo. screen <laughs> poor little gizmo who is just like you know he's he keeps on being taken away from his family he keeps on being harassed by his own progeny mm-hmm. <laughs> who like try to kill don't really try to kill him but like torture him yeah um and and i do really like it that he goes rambo and <laughs> and turns into like and and i like there's a line where it's just like what happened to gizmo and billy's like i think we just pushed him too far <laughs> yep it's there there's it's definitely a much looser film in a lot of ways but and and in many ways a more cartoony film oh completely like they um, they have a fourth wall break they um yeah. It opens with the intro to the Looney, like to your point about this being more like the Looney Tunes. Um, it opens with the Daffy Duck intro and even like cuts in in the middle um, at some point with with that again to remind you that like, yeah, this isn't to be taken seriously. It's very much it's it's a meta commentary. There's like a whole scene where Leonard Malton is reviewing Gremlins that yeah. is new on VHS. <laughs> and- it's yeah it's just such a wild um movie that really i i think if you're like 
the sequel, like obviously there's been sequels for decades, but um, they really became a big thing in the 80s and everything was all sequels. 80s and 90s were really when the franchise um, uh, idea really took hold. And I think that Gremlins 2 in so many ways is Joe Dante's answer to that. Like that's him commenting on the sequel-itis that existed at the time. He's like, okay, you want a Gremlin sequel? Here you go. We're going to mock sequels to bring this one. And so I think mm-hmm. from that, I, I definitely enjoyed it more than I remember enjoying it. Um, and I think that was a big reason why. was because it's it's really, it doesn't even come close to taking itself seriously as a movie. Oh, yeah, not at all. It, not even in the way that the original film took itself. Right seriously like yeah there there is that that's what i'm saying there's a subversive aspect to it that i think is really delightful Mm -hmm. um in in much the same ways that the looney tunes are subversive and you know like you say the the scenes where they break the fourth wall uh where the the guy who who's in eating raul is there uh who runs the movie theater Mm -hmm. (laughs) um you know and then and hulk hogan shows up to like threaten the gremlins to start the film again uh, you know, there's there's a reference actually in in that in the one sequence where the film burns up, right, and the gremlins are mu- are messing with it. Yeah, um, there's a reference to to William Castle's The Tingler, where something similar happens. Uh, apparently, I have heard tell that in the original VHS release of Gremlins two, they actually subbed in a whole sequence about the gremlins destroying the VHS. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I do not know if this is 100% accurate. This is something that I, I had heard and read about, but this is apparently a thing. Um, so so yeah, it, it's a much more anarchic, it's much more like, like you say meta, it, it's, it is much more about kind of the silliness of it all um, with this ongoing commentary from Brain Gremlin uh, about, you know, the the atavistic nature of the gremlins and and things like that and so i i love it i honestly enjoy the crap out of that movie (laughs) i love the fact that christopher lee is there yes uh being just weird and carrying around at one point he's carrying around a pod from uh invasion of the body snatchers um just like all of these little little jokes that run throughout the film there's very to be expected i think in a lot of ways from joe dante but um but just a really, I, I enjoy it. It's a really clever movie. Yeah. And both of these are available to watch on HBO Max. Um, so if you don't own them um, and don't want to rent them and you have HBO Max, you can enjoy yourself a nice double feature like we both did this week. Um, yeah, so fun. Uh, we did get a question from Michelle. Question or comment? I think it's a comment. Um, a comment. Michelle says, even with its moments of horror, I still saw this uh, back in the theaters back in the day and really enjoyed it. Although it definitely had some moments. I'm looking at you. I'm looking at your microwave death and dad slash Santa Claus scene. I remember I loved Gizmo. And unlike today, there wasn't a bunch. There weren't a bunch of items to buy. So, yeah, the dad slash Santa Claus scene. Oh, my gosh. We didn't really talk much about that. But, (laughs) oh, like talk about so that's where the first movie really it doesn't grind to a halt but it really just takes this like really serious turn when kate starts talking about why she doesn't celebrate christmas and the whole thing with her dad trying to surprise them and climb down the chimney and he broke his neck oh so horrible and um it's it's horrible but actually this time around i was like this is a a joke like it it's it's a joke in the sense that, you know, we get these, these backstories, right. About, about why a character doesn't like a holiday or something (laughs) like that. And what, and the most horrifying thing (laughs) that could happen on Christmas has happened. Yep. And, and it's inserted into the middle of this and no, and like, Billy's just like, what the <laughs> like, like no you're just like i don't know how to respond to this and right. what i i i really like it in gremlins too that it they mention lincoln and she's like no don't 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 talk about lincoln and it's like what what about lincoln well on 
the, the Lincoln's birthday, the most horrible thing. And she starts going off and Billy's just like, we do not have time for this. And, and I, I really like that as some people are like, oh, this kind of belittles the original, the original scene or whatever. It's just like, no, the, the whole, the joke is mm-hmm. that this is the kind of backstory that these kinds of characters have, you know, like, why do you hate Christmas? Well, my father fell down a chimney put pretending to be, to be Santa, Santa Claus. Um, yeah. It's funny. Like it is, it, it's dark, but it is funny. <laughs> you know, I have never looked at it that way. Thank you. <laughs> I've always looked at it like, oh my gosh, that's so horrible. I I think that, you know, it's I, I really love Joe Dante's movies and and he he in his less mainstream films, so films like The Howling and um Piranha, right? Has kind of similar jokes where you're half you're half in the space where it's like, is this serious? And this is horrifying, and half in the like, this is ridiculous. And he he does a really good job at balancing them out. So balancing out that sensation of like horror and this is a bit silly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Um, the microwave death was gross, but I found the blender death even grosser. Yeah, with all of the the green mm-hmm. entrails like everywhere. everywhere. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> and i i think something else that i really like sorry uh, i was gonna wrap things up but now i'm just remembering little bits about <laughs> gremlins that i just love like with the christmas music and stuff and how how do you hear what i hear became a song that just triggered me when i was i didn't know what triggering was at the time but it was like when i heard that song i would think of gremlins and i would just freak out <laughs> like um just because it it becomes this creepy moment in that movie and then um and then it's just it's so the last time i was watching it last year it's kind of an annual tradition now but um i didn't realize i had never noticed before that jonathan banks is in this movie and certain other people that i'm like wait a second <laughs> i didn't realize they were in this it's just it's fun yeah. to go back and look and see who people are like i loved the show alice when i was a kid and mrs deagle played one of the waitresses in alice and i didn't notice that until now i'm older and i can make these connections and um it's just fun it's so fun it is fun um any other thoughts about either of these movies no, I mean, I think that these are they they are great films. They they're a lot of fun and um and particularly the first one is I I would say that it is a Christmas movie, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um also a horror movie. Also a horror movie. Yes. Last year, uh so I had a roommate <laughs> who, yeah, I'm going to tell the story. Uh I had a roommate who was like very adamant she hated horror. She does not watch horror movies. It's not her thing. She hates the idea of horror. And she was out somewhere. I was sitting at home. I was watching Gremlins. She came in and she was just like, oh, I love this movie. And I said, but it's a horror movie. And she's like, no, it isn't. I like it. (laughs) It's like, that's not how horror movies work. (laughs) Guess Uh, what? You like some horror movies. You just don't realize it. (laughs) It is a horror movie. I mean, Uh it's a it's about weird little creatures that spring from the back of a cute little creature and and wreak havoc on Christmas Eve. Like. Exactly. What do you want? <laughs> and just because I'm not scared of it as an adult doesn't mean it wasn't terrifying when I was a kid. So, yeah. I I also I I do have to say that just just as a little a tie a small point of a personal connection, I always say bye bye woof woof when I am leaving my apartment <laughs> I and I have that. to leave my dog behind. <laughs> um, and and I I I say it in the voice too. Like I do I do Gizmo's voice. It's just, <laughs> Uh, and yeah i didn't i didn't realize that until uh fairly recently actually i was just like oh i always say that and that comes from gremlins <laughs> it's so funny how there's just those little things that you say you don't even really think about where they come from and then all of a sudden it clicks yeah. like oh yeah <laughs> so fun well thank you all so much for for joining us today we hope you've enjoyed this as much as we've enjoyed um talking about about these movies uh, again you can watch them on hbo max and just have yourself a good old time uh, just in time for the holidays. Oh, all right. So um, we would like to thank our patrons for helping make the show possible. They are Ollie, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. 
If you would like to become a patron too, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame and sign up. Um, there are some perks involved if you, if you do that. Um, and we're working on catching up on the ones that we're still uh, uh, backed up on, uh, but we're getting there. Uh, we do have our Zazzle store, although we're making some changes and migrating some things, but it is Zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. And we have our ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. Um, be sure to go to our website. We will be having some new reviews and bringing, I, I know I said the five is back and then I dropped the ball, but it's, you know, we're doing it. We're doing some fun <laughs> things in December. Karen. I promise. I know. I promise. Um, and yeah, if you would like to reach out to us, there's lots of ways you can do that. We are available by email citizendamepod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on the socials. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Citizen Dame Pod. On Mastodon, which I personally have not started using, but I have my thing there. But we're also on that Citizen Dame Pod at Mastodon.social. And then on Letterboxd, we are at Citizen Dame. And you can find all kinds of lists, including we keep a, a running track of all the movies that we talk about. Um, and we're doing that month by month. So we're started like by the time you're listening to this, we've got our December list started of all the movies that we talk about on this podcast so that you can keep up if there's anything that you want to check out and go watch um you can also find us individually lauren where are you i am on everything i'm on twitter instagram and letterbox at lh business i am kind of moving further into mastodon um i'm lh business at mastodon.social uh twitter is getting really distressing um <laughs> but we're still there yeah. And I'm on all the things at Karen M. Peterson. So uh, that is how you can find me. And uh, I think that's going to wrap things up for this week. We thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time. Bye. Oh, genetic sunblock. Yes. Might I have a brief word with you? My friend, you have potential. I want to help you be all that you can be, may I? As I'm sure you're aware, sunlight poses a problem for our uh, ethnic group. We don't tin, we don't burn. Frankly, we just become a rather unappetizing sort of photochemical leftover. Thus, this formula, specially designed for those of the nocturnal persuasion, to make bright light no problem whatever. That will be of crucial usefulness where you'll be going. What does he mean where he'll be going? We can't let them get away. All they have to do is to eat three or four children and there'll be the most appalling publicity.